morning. I'm Derek, one of the staff team here. I'm reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in our series, and the page number in the Auditorium Bibles is 1067, if you care to join with me. I'm starting at verse 7. Paul writes, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that this life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Thanks be to God. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us, says Paul. So far in 2 Corinthians, we've been considering with Paul the greatness of God. There have been many wonderful things written so far in 2 Corinthians about who God is. And now in chapter 4, Paul addresses again the attitude of the Corinthians, the believers. And in effect, he's reminding them that this faith is not a walk in the park. The Corinthians, filled with the culture of their day, believed that faith was complementary to who they already were that they were greater people because of faith, but they were already a great people in their own eyes. And so Paul is saying your boast is a fallacy in effect. Faith, if it really means anything to you, isn't easy. It's not a walk in the park. And Paul goes on, as we've just heard, to talk about how demanding and painful Faith actually is. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 30 to 31, he speaks of the perilous hazards he's already endured in his faith. He says, As for us, 
Why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. And he says this in the context of his own faith walk, his witness, and his apostleship in setting up churches. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 1 to 7 is actually the testimony of the believers suffering for their faith. And Paul is writing to alert the Corinthians that rather than being boastful and uh, thinking you've got it all together, you are very quickly going to realize that faith has costs. There is anguish involved. And faith, if it's true faith, is faith lived out in the midst of affliction and persecution Now, uh, some of you may have uh, heard of Leonard Cohen. We're going to hear a song from him in a moment, or a part of a song. Um, First of all, though, I want to say, in effect, Paul is saying, we have, or we think we have, everything pretty much sorted. Our lives are pretty good. We have this power. We have this testimony. We have faith that makes a difference. But Paul, I think, in the first few verses of chapter 4, is saying, actually, it's God who has this power. You have no power. You have very little power. If, in fact, your faith is true and real. It's God, you see, who has this power. And I thought of a line from this Leonard Cohen song. I'm not saying anything about Leonard Cohen's faith or anything else. Some have said Leonard Cohen drives people to suicide. (laughs) And Leonard Cohen is like that. He was also a poet too, and some of his lines are quite precious. So listen to this, and particularly the last line about cracks. They sang at the break of day. Start again. I heard them say, Don't dwell on what has passed away or what is yet. That's how the land 
Light gets in through them. And I think the opposite is also true. The light shines out through cracks. What's faith like in tough places? When, as Paul says, we are earthenware clay jars that hold something precious. Well, earthenware and clay jars often have cracks. They're imperfect. They're rough. The light gets in, and the light sometimes shines out through those cracks. You know, the Corinthians, with all their pride... They thought they had it made. They were super signed, sealed. Sealed? Could the light get in to their lives? Could the light shine out? Last week, Keith used the metaphors of veils and images from Paul in chapter 3. This week, the metaphor is of crude vessels, clay vessels that are somewhat imperfect and broken. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us, says Paul. This all-surpassing power is of God. We aren't the light. We are those who allow the light to shine out. We are those who allow the light to penetrate in and make a difference in us. Paul has been driven down, crushed as a result of being a witness to his faith. He concludes from these events, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. So he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if we were to use today's terminology, we might say, Paul suffered deep depression. We might say he may have even had a nervous breakdown. And he writes that this is because of his faith, the cost of bearing witness, the cost of being a disciple. It's as if Paul looked into the pit. He stared into the pit. But there was something that kept him from falling in. And you know, it's true for us. You ask any missionary who's been on the mission field in particular, the stark reality of enduring pain and suffering for one's faith. In verses 8 and 9, Paul paints a picture of opposites. He says it like this. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. 
Paul realizes that to be this earthenware vessel means that light has penetrated, shone in the light of the person of Jesus Christ. And in turn, light shines out. Shines out. The weakness, yet the power of the gospel. Light in and light out. And Paul's drawing the suffering of faith in Jesus Christ onto himself, as he says a little later, so that believers themselves may have a corresponding amount of blessing in life. This death and this new life of Jesus, that's what it's all about. Richard Rohr, a Franciscan priest, has written this in his book, Falling Upward, life as the biblical tradition makes clear, is both loss and renewal, death and resurrection, chaos and healing at the same time. Life seems to be a collision of opposites. You know, many have written as if they've got faith all summed up, neatly packaged, and can write so glowingly and flowingly about faith precepts. But Paul's strange style of ministry is that to embody the gospel of Jesus Christ is to live in the death of Jesus. But, he says, it's also to live in the life of Jesus. In verse 10, he writes, We always carry about in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Here's the irony. The Corinthians were bold. They were powerful. They were popular, maybe. They were overcoming, so they thought. They were attractive warriors for the faith, for the whole world to see. But here comes Paul, speaking of weakness and suffering and shame and ultimately the death of Jesus Christ. What does it say to us in these slick presentations of the gospel, in the great churches of the world today who have got the latest in sound production equipment and everything else, and the message proclaimed is of health and wealth, and the power of the gospel. Well, today, I think Paul is wanting to say to us, think again. Is not the gospel more real through the brokenness, through the cracks of that which holds it? You and me? Believers? These embarrassing, weak, nothing, painful, insignificant displays in the eyes of the world are in fact the badges of a completely new community, a community birthed in Jesus Christ where the cross overshadows. Says Paul in verse 11, For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. 
There's no Corinthian Greco-Roman display here that we can point and say, we've arrived. For Paul, there was nothing earthly and refined and beautiful as such that reflected his own journey and his own testimony of faith. But instead, Paul says, when our bodies are getting old, when we are decaying, when things are dying, when our voices are not heard, then in faith we are being infused with resurrection life. We are the ones who are alive, says Paul in verse 11. So as one life gives way to another, we all the more are gaining the person of Jesus Christ. As our old life is cast off, put aside, so at the same time, Christ is infilling us, the resurrected Christ. We are the ones who are alive. We bear in our bodies the precious treasure and the promise of Christ Jesus' salvation life. We carry it around in what? Silver jugs? Crystal vases? Wonderful vessels? No, earthenware clay jars. We are not overwhelmed. We are not in despair. We are not abandoned. We are not destroyed, says Paul. And his conclusion is this in verse 12. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Saved, saved from these things, saved from destruction. And for Paul, there's a proportional purpose. The more he suffers, he seems to be saying, the more it is for you, the church, the more you have life. Elsewhere in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. It's as if nothing can touch Paul. Suffering? No. Persecution? No. I found a parallel in a story I was reading recently. This is out of the book, What Abby Taught Us. A mother in Canterbury who lost her daughter in a horrific level crossing accident, her 13-year-old daughter, and she included this, and I have to read it to you. In November 2015, Parisian Antoine Liris gave the world a supreme demonstration of our power to select the focus of our attention. In a Facebook post called, You Will Not Have My Hatred, after terrorist attacks in Paris in December robbed him of his wife, he wrote this, Friday night, you stole the life of an exceptional being the love of my life, the mother of my son, but you will not have my hatred. I do not know who you are, and I don't want to know. You are dead souls. If the God for which you killed indiscriminately made us in his image, 
Each bullet in the body of my wife will have been a wound in his heart. Therefore I will not give you the gift of hating you. You have obviously sought it, but responding to hatred with anger would be to give in to the same ignorance that has made you what you are. You want me to be afraid, to cast a mistrustful eye over my fellow citizens, to sacrifice my freedom for security, lost. Same player, same game. I saw her this morning, finally, after many nights and days of waiting. She was just as beautiful as when she left on Friday evening, as beautiful as when I fell madly in love with her more than 12 years ago. Of course, I'm devastated with grief. I will give you that tiny victory, but it will be a short-term grief. I know she will join us every day and that she will find each other, we will find each other in a paradise of free souls which you will never have access to. We are only two, my son and I, but we are more powerful than all the armies of the world. In any case, I have no more time to waste on you. I need to get back to Melville, who is waiting, waking from the afternoon nap. He's just 17 months old. He'll eat his snack like every day, and then we are going to play like we do every day. And every day of his life, this little boy will insult you with his happiness and freedom. Because no, you won't have his hatred either. Life and death now. In verses 13 to 15, Paul outlines what this life really means, what it looks like. He's saying, we are dying, we are suffering, we are in the pain of dying to the old life, yet... We are rising to resurrection life in Jesus. And this is the price of costly faith. This is the blessing of costly faith. The paradoxical revelation of God's glory. You know, when I was preparing this, I thought, after hearing yet another story of a young person in emotional turmoil and trouble, why do so many of our young people attempt to take their lives, see their lives as pointless and worthless. Maybe it's because they have no cause to live or die for, nothing that gives them a sense of hope, no worthy causes, nothing to pin their hopes on. But we have this hope. And it lives in jars of clay. Linking his testimony in verse 13 to Psalm 116 verse 10, Paul writes, it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. And he's obviously thinking about the whole context of Psalm 116. Verses 7 and 8 have this to say, Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. Paul praises God for every aspect of deliverance from death. And in verse 14 of our passage today, he says, 
because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us from Jesus and present us with you to himself. This is so because, because we know. Paul in his second Corinthian letter is well aware that what has gone wrong with the world is bringing the world down. And he believes this is so even for the Corinthian fellowship in part. He speaks about the fact that he had received, it seemed like a death sentence. And he concludes that it's so that he may not rely on himself any longer, but rely on God. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 15, Paul concludes, all of this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Death is at work in Paul, but life for the true believer is being shown and poured out daily. So, if we are believers, we suffer toward our future. Paul made these faith declarations so that everything would benefit the believer, the reader in Corinth. In verse 16, he writes, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Paul knows that his life will probably end in execution or at least severe persecution that brings on death. He doesn't know when. He has an open mind. But he knows this. God's new age is breaking into the now. And he's spelling out his hope for this world, for now, for us even. In verse 17, he writes, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, all these sufferings. It's like, he says, it's getting a new suit of clothes. Putting on the suit of clothes, this glorious suit of clothes. Or on the other hand, he says, it's like gaining a new body where muscles are growing and the body is um, becoming more and more fitter, firmer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, he says, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. We see in part, one day we will see face to face. That's what he's referring to. Look forward. Look beyond the trials and troubles. Look beyond the annoying and the irksome things that are happening in your life. We do not lose heart, he says. He looks at the weakened state of the faith of the Corinthians. He looks at their aspirations. And we might well look at the world about us today, look at ourselves even, and look at the suffering of the world. But he says, this is an opportunity, not an ending. In Romans chapter 8, he says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed 
we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. We fix our eyes, he concludes, on what is not on what is seen, but what is unseen. So today, the encouragement for us is the first statement of our priorities. Let's cultivate authentic faith. Let's not live in this name it, claim it, I will be blessed with every worldly wealth, everything I need, good health, and everything else if I trust in Jesus Christ. Because if what Paul is saying is true, we will suffer. But we, through our suffering, will shine light from earthen vessels. Rob Yule, a Presbyterian leader, has written this and it grabbed me when I read it. Our natural instinct is to rebel at suffering, to reject it. But God's mis- God mysteriously permits suffering so that by accepting it, we might come to know him and his love more fully than we could if we had never suffered. Looking death in the face but claiming the power of the Creator God. After all, that's what the Jewish heroes of age and memorial past did themselves. I'm going to ask Jill, my wife, to come up um, and just to pray see what she's saying or as a prelude. Um, Nearly two years ago now, we lost our second son, Nathan, as a result of muscular dystrophy. And uh, I've entitled this, um, what Jill's about to, to say, What Nathan Taught Us, grabbing that title, What Abby Taught Us. Thanks, Jill. So I want to ask you a couple of questions, three questions in fact. What was it that Nathan's, Nathan taught us? When Derek first asked me, I thought I can't answer that question, it's just there's too much. Um, so this is a real squished in attempt to answer that. Um, our journey with Nathan has taught us so much, too much to put into words. Sometimes I think it's taught me everything I know that has any real value, everything that really matters. Nathan has taught me the biggest things and the best things. (laughs) He has shown me Jesus, pointed me towards a real purpose, shown me the meaning of true life, fullness of life in Christ. He has helped me to find fullness of life, joy and peace, whatever our circumstances. Our journey has shown me God's glory. Nath showed us a life full of peace, joy, trusting acceptance. He held on to hope and his triumph unfolded. There was a particular song that became quite special to Nathan. It's the only song that he ever actually asked me to help him find. He had heard it or heard a part of the song on TV. It was um, from Hillsong Young and Free, and we listened to the whole album 
to find the song that he had heard in the chorus in particular that was really special to him. Some of the words of the song, which is now really comforting to me when I think of the words and the fact that it was special to Nathan. And speaking of Jesus, it talks about, I found you, I love you, I sing of all your passion won for me. I'll get there. <laughs> I sing of what your love has done in me. And for me to know that those words were so special to Nathan, the words of that song in the last days of his life is just so meaningful. I find that because of our journey with Nath, I have priceless deposits in my heart. And sometimes my heart feels so full that I feel like it's going to burst. If there could be one scripture that would sum up what Nath has taught me, Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our journey with Nath has brought me so much closer to God, to the knowledge that this is not our home. We have a race to run until Jesus calls us to our true home. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And my second question is actually two questions. Why is Nathan's resurrection so important, and why was it so important to him? Nathan's physical body was wasting away quite literally, but in his spirit he was getting stronger and stronger. For Nath, being with Jesus became everything. All his hope summed up in the knowledge that he would be eternally with Jesus. As his days on earth came to an end, I believe he knew his Lord more and more each day. slipping gently from this life and moving closer and closer to the next with incredible peace and deep trust. There were times when I would go into his room and it would seem like he had been away somewhere. One day I asked him, have you seen Jesus yet? To which he cheekily replied, I might have. <laughs> he just grinned at me. I wanted him to tell me more. I was like really excited, but he never did tell me more. I imagine his encounters with Jesus were extremely personal and impossible to put into words. So Nate's resurrection is hugely important to me. His resurrection is now the, the basis upon which I have an ongoing connection with him and an ongoing relationship with him. I often say to people, Nathan is actually more alive than I am. He is now living in resurrected fullness of life. And something I've recently noticed that I've started to say, I said it to my daughter on the phone the other day and she picked up on it at the end of the conversation and she said to me, I like the way you said that. I have found, and it's quite recent, that if I'm referring back to the time when Nathan died, I actually find that now I say when Nathan was resurrected and it's just something that has happened naturally um, it's just a much better 
answer, a focus, um, when Nathan was resurrected as opposed to when Nathan died. There is such a certainty in my heart and I feel so much joy when I think of him, healed and whole, full of joy and running. He is more alive than ever. Our son Campbell had a vision just a few days after Nathan was resurrected and while we were preparing for his funeral. Campbell said he was just drifting off to sleep. He was in that place somewhere between awake and asleep. And he saw Nath. He was down on all fours. He was crouched with his hands on the ground. And Campbell said to him, what are you doing? To which Nath replied, I'm practicing my sprint starts so we can race when you get here. And that just says it all to me. It's just incredibly comforting to to have that knowledge. Sometimes when I'm worshipping at home, I'm on my own. I feel so connected to Nathan in a way that I can't describe because I know he's worshipping too. And in that moment, we're together. There are two stories that I want to share because I think they speak of Nathan's resurrected life. Recently, Derek and I were sorting through all our books because the Rotary Book Sale was coming up and we wanted to um, declutter a little bit. We had a stack of rugby magazines that were Nathan's. He subscribed for a couple of years and we were trying to decide what to do with them, offered them to Campbell, but he didn't think he had room to store them. They're chocked up, aren't they, Marie? (laughs) Small house, lots of stuff. Um, Derek decided to keep one, which was a special edition one. So there they were in a pile on the kitchen floor, and this day I just found myself on the kitchen floor beside this pile of magazines, and I decided that I would just hold each one and, and look at the front cover and have a wee skim through before I popped it in the pile to give them away. And I'd been sitting on the floor for a little while doing this, and then something that I cannot describe to you happened. I can't really put it into words myself. It was extremely momentary, but just for a moment. It was as if God opened up a window or a shaft. Somehow, I was just completely connected to Nathan in that moment. And afterwards, I thought, after it had passed, did I imagine that? Was that real? Um, I believe it was. And in that moment, there was just a certainty in my heart that Nathan saw me. Somehow he knew, just in that briefest of moments, he knew that that's what I was doing and there was a real sense of connectedness with him. That's the end of that question. Well, apart from Nathan's complete healing, would you have it any other way? Derek and I often are not on the same wavelength with communication and when I first read that question I thought, what a stupid question. <laughs> I thought, that's not how I would put the question. But then I sort of got it. Um, I don't believe a complete physical healing on earth was ever God's intention for Nathan. In fact, I felt quite some time ago, God tell me that Nathan was already healed. I have a certainty that dawned on me one day as I reflected on the words of a song I, was, I glanced at Nathan's photograph and it was as if, boom, something just landed in here. 
and I just knew that God accomplished everything that he intended to accomplish in Nathan's life and through Nathan's life. Nathan was not robbed of a single moment, and we weren't robbed either. He ran his race, and he made it to the finish line victorious. In Hebrews 12, we read, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. This was how Nath ran his race, his eyes fixed on Jesus. It was a life well lived. And the suffering wasn't that part of God's precious gift to us too because of the treasure that we now have in our hearts. Yes, it was challenging. We suffered, and Nath certainly suffered. I'm not trying to diminish the pain of that suffering. But compared to God's great love and grace, all he has done in Nath and all he has done in us, the suffering fades when compared to God's great glory. Thank you. Thanks, team. Oh, right. The collection will be taken up during our worship.